Hello and welcome to another podcast presented by the Medical Council of New South Wales. Today's discussion is about informed consent. Why is it such an important part of delivering safe and high quality health care? In some ways, and maybe it seems a little dramatic to say that everything's at stake because no aspect of healthcare or no aspect of medical treatment can proceed without consent. And how can doctors make sure patients have given them informed consent? If you're having a conversation with a patient, it's, it's at that opportunity you have the chance of finding out if they're concerned about anything particular. And if you don't make time for that, then you're never going to tick off the material risk obligation. Then there's going to be problems. Introducing today's expert guests, here is your host, Dr Annette Pantel. Hi, I'm Dr Annette Pantel. I'm the Medical Director at the Medical Council of New South Wales. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting here today on the traditional country of the Walla Medical people of the Darug Nation and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Today we're joined by three special guests to discuss informed consent. Professor Ian Kerridge is a Professor of Bioethics and Medicine at Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney and a staff haematologist, bone marrow transplant physician at Royal North Shore Hospital. Thanks very much, Annette. Professor Cameron Stewart is a Professor of Health, Law and Ethics at the University of Sydney Law School, Co-Director of Sydney Health Law and an Associate of Sydney Health Ethics at Sydney Medical School. G'day, Annette. Dr Martine Walker is a GP and Medical Advisor to the New South Wales Medical Council, where she's actively involved in assessing complaints, promoting compliance with professional standards and protecting the public. Hi, Annette. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Ian, you're well known for your work in bioethics and philosophy of medicine. When we talk about the need for informed consent from the patient, what exactly is at stake? In some ways, and maybe it seems a little dramatic to say that everything's at stake, because no aspect of healthcare or no aspect of medical treatment can proceed without consent. Now that consent may change in the circumstances and, and according to what's wanted, but consent is, is key to everything. So, so what's at stake for the patient is that they get the treatment they want and it's consistent with their sort of preferences and their values. What's at stake for the doctor is their integrity and, and their uh, expertise, if you want. What's at stake for the relationship is the the trust that's necessary to have that relationship and indeed the, the very existence and continued existence of that relationship. And what's at stake for the health system is, is that people are treated appropriately and sustainably and, and the whole enterprise of medicine is sustained. So, so really everything's at stake. This is a really key part of consent. Cameron, how does the law define informed consent and when is it required? So informed consent is one of three types of consent that happen in law or the three functions of consent that happen in law. The first function of consent is to act as a sort of permissive process. So whenever anyone's being touched, they have to give their permission and that applies to everyone. So one of the core values of the common law is what we call bodily integrity or autonomy and that's reflective in the idea that every time you touch someone, you've got to have permission to do it. So consent works as a defence to any claim that someone's been touched without permission. And the second function is what you refer to as informed consent. So that's the notion that health practitioners have a duty to provide information to patients 
which is material to them about their risks uh, involved with having the treatment or not having the treatment. And the third function goes back to the values that Ian mentioned, which is there's a relational function of consent. It's the basic or it's the, the foundational aspect of the relationship in therapy. So consent often, it's the architecture of the relationship. So within that, we can examine issues of consent in trust, consent and uh, respect, consent and familial relationships. It's all those other things can then be brought in. So that's the way lawyers would think about it. We think about it in, in terms of those three dimensions. Whereas doctors, we're just doing those things all of the time, aren't we? I mean, all, yes. all three of those functions to a greater or less extent are happening all of the time. Yeah, exactly. I suppose what lawyers do is they pull apart the world into different types of claims and counterclaims and defences. Uh, so the complexity of you doing all of those things at once then manifests itself if things go wrong in a court case where there'll be a constituent bit that'll be about battery there'll be a constituent bit that'll be about negligence and then maybe a constituent thing there about breach of fiduciary duty or problem with getting consent from a substituted decision maker or undue influence. So it's very complex, isn't it, when it gets to that uh, legal entity. But before things get to a, to a claim or a court case, we often see complaints and that's the function of the medical council. Martine, you've seen complaints that come to the council from patients who feel that the doctor has acted without their informed consent. What kinds of stories do we get and what are the, what are the impacts for patients? I think a lot of the complaints that we get have a consent component to them and it's probably that lack of consent and the affront that the patient feels that often leads it to being a complaint. And so speaking to what you were talking about, Cameron, about touch... Often one of the types of complaints that we get is about inappropriate physical examinations, a woman who has a breast examination or a vaginal examination and there's no discussion about why that examination is necessary and what that's going to contribute to that patient's management. So that's a breach of consent. Financial consent is often a problem that we see and that complaints are made about when a doctor recommends or commits a patient to investigations and treatments but doesn't explain what it will cost to the patient over and above Medicare out of pocket and also doesn't discuss that there are other options, for example, going through a public hospital that they might have been able to get that treatment for free. The other sort of consent complaints that we see are often to do with capacity and often they come from family members when for example an elderly patient has been assessed by a doctor who perhaps doesn't have the ability to make that assessment as having capacity and that leads to documents being signed enduring power of attorneys wills being changed lots of money being involved and very very unhappy people and probably the biggest consent related complaints that we see are related to treatment. Um, so when patients are offered treatment without explanation about the pros and the cons and also about the people that could offer that treatment more cheaply. And, and I'm thinking, for example, of a, a complaint we had by a patient who had two skin cancers taken off their nose by a skin cancer doctor and was left very disfigured. There'd be no discussion about referral to a plastic surgeon, no discussion about other alternative ways of approaching those skin cancers. Another one is urology and patients with prostate cancer where they are offered 
surgery, often with significant out-of-pocket expenses, and there's no discussion by the urologist about other options like radiotherapy that could be done at a public hospital for free. And so I think the outcomes when, when there's lack of consent or lack of adequate consent is that there's damage to patients and there's damage financially and there's also damage to the trust of the profession. And I imagine that when an episode of care is complex or urgent, many factors can get in the way of informed consent. Ian, working as a haematologist, what steps do you go through to make sure you have a patient's informed consent? Look, there's probably two parts to that, isn't there? So one is the question of urgency and how that changes the sort of consent dynamic. And then the second is maybe thinking about what steps any practitioner may go to to make sure that consent is informed and is valid. There's no question, and, and as I must say as a haematologist, is that we do you know some things that are highly acute and so forth and others perhaps like managing clots or giving advice about anticoagulation that, that aren't so much of a big deal and we can take longer periods of time and so forth. But certainly is that the way that you give information, the type of information you give, the amount of time that you spend, you know, even the, the context in which it's given and the perhaps the third parties that are involved in that, all of that will be determined to some extent at least by the acuteness of the situation. You know, the idea that somebody comes in with severe acute asthma and you spend hours talking about the side effects of different inhalational devices is clearly nonsense and, and anyone listening would know that that's the case. So we do that to a greater or lesser extent all the time and, and that is a a bit of a judgment call, isn't it? I mean, as a clinician, you will make a judgment as to how acute the situation is and whether you need a decision now or whether it can wait a little bit longer, how, how much room you know, there is for those kinds of discussions to be had. And so I think that's the first thing is, is that you need to take into account context. The second thing, though, is, is that what I do to, to try and improve the likelihood of consent being valid, I think the first thing is, is that to try and take time because it's incredibly time-consuming and it's difficult, it's time-consuming, particularly on something that has the risk of ongoing problems or can significantly transform somebody's life. You need to take time uh, and sometimes you need to create that time. You know, As a general practitioner, I'd imagine that that would be saying you have to come back and talk about this again right? or I'm going to give you some information and then let's digest that and come back. When I'm sent somebody to talk to about bone marrow transplantation, which is a, is a super high-risk procedure. You know, we, we expect at the end of one year that one in four patients will die following the transplant. So this is, this is very, very high risk. But in that situation, the, the consent to transplant, just the beginning consent, takes about an hour and a half. We literally schedule that period of time to sit down and go through in great and sort of sometimes terrifying detail uh, with people what's involved. The second thing is that I literally try and do exactly what your question is, is that take steps. So to say to someone, for example, why are we having this conversation? So let's not even talk about the treatment. Let's talk about why we even need to be talking about treatment. So in other words, your situation is you have such and such a disease. This is bad. This is what your outcome would be. Now let's talk about treatment. Right? And I do that because it makes no sense to talk about treatment unless we both know the situation that somebody's in with their disease. So, so I'll put lots and lots of signposts in so we can say, let's talk about our current situation. How are you going with this? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Do you have questions at this point? No? 
fine, then let's go on to the next bit. And then we'll lay out what the options are and laying them out, doing it both verbally and using sort of graphics and so forth as well. So use mechanisms to assist communication. So I suppose it's those three things. Time, really clear steps, lots of opportunities for questioning and using different communication modalities. I agree with what you've said, Ian. I think in general practice, it's less the acute, it's more the complex. And patients who have complex medical problems and the treatment that one person recommends might counteract the treatment that another person recommends. And we've got to sort of walk this tightrope of trying to figure out what's best for the patient and and talking about the pros and cons of all the different approaches. I must say, if there's ever any issues like that, I like to share the love. That's where often I will involve another practitioner. For example, you know, even going back to that urology example that I mentioned before, that you get another person's opinion. And also even in our practice just um, a couple of weeks ago I had this man with this wonderful infected sebaceous cyst and I just wanted to get it open and get it drained and he was very reticent about that and so I got two or three of my other peers in to say what do you think we should do? And and they all said it was a wonderful sebaceous cyst. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my approach when there's concerns about consent or concerns about making sure that the patients are fully informed is not only time, as you say, but also to, to involve other practitioners so that there's a full range of information that's been provided. Thanks, Martine. As doctors, we understand we have a duty of care to our patients, that caring for our patients means that we need to act according to our best judgment. But what if the patient doesn't agree with us or lacks capacity for decision-making? Cameron, can you come in and speak to that? So there's, there's two issues there, I think, which is, firstly, if your patient doesn't agree with the advice that's been given, that's fine. It's their decision about whether they consent to a treatment or not, and if you've provided that information to them and you've got a good record of that, and they go away and they see someone else, then you've done your job. It's part of the... You know, upside of autonomy is that patients get to decide what happens to them. Of course, they're also responsible when they make a decision which doesn't work out. So as long as you've documented your processes and you know what information's been provided to the patient and if that's valid information, then you're fine. There's nothing to worry about there. Uh, when the patient lacks capacity, that's obviously what that does is it introduces another dimension to the whole process of consent because you bring in, have to bring in a substitute decision maker. If it's an emergency situation, obviously we can act and we can treat in the patient's best interest without reference to consent at all, and that's recognised in statute and in common law. But if it is a process that could involve a substitute decision-maker, then we have to familiarise ourselves with how that's done in New South Wales, and it's done through Part 5 of the Guardianship Act. And there's a list of people beginning with the spouse and working our way through to friends and relatives who have the power to consent on behalf of people who who don't have the capacity to make medical decisions. The threshold issue is a difficult one. How do you test for capacity? It fluctuates depending upon how difficult the decision is. So removal of a sebaceous cyst is one level, but compare that with a treatment so that Ian might be providing a hematology where it's going to be drawn out over months. These are different decisions requiring different mental capacities. So the law basically allows for a flexibility in terms of functional capacity. In terms of whether there's good clinical tests for that, there's some standard tests that could be used. I think the gold standard test is the MacArthur Competency Assessment Tool. I don't think it's used that often, though, because it takes time. And people use proxies for that, such as the mini mental state examination. 
The problem is that they're not perfectly aligned with the legal test, which is does the person understand and comprehend the treatment information? Can they maintain that treatment information? And can they put it all together and then communicate a decision? So that's the basic requirements under the Guardianship Act and at common law for capacity. And then once you've found that the person can't do those things, any one of those steps sort of knocks you out of capacity, then you've got to go to the question, well, who can make the decision? And that's the what we call a person responsible in New South Wales. So Cameron, I agree with everything you're saying, right? I mean, I think the reality is, is that most clinicians are not, every time they see someone, making a determination of their competence based on a MacArthur competency assessment score or even, to be honest, a mini mental status score or even a mental status quotient. I mean, clinicians are generally not doing that and partly it's because they're making a a judgment, a clinical judgment, as to whether somebody has capacity. So in that sense, they're probably closer to what's a legal requirement anyway. You know, does this person understand that? Do they retain it and so forth? So I completely agree with that bit. The challenging bit, I think, for clinicians is that many of those parts of capacity strike me as being unclear judgment calls so how well do they retain this information how much do they relate it to themselves how well do they understand it there's no clear guidance about what each of those are there's no clear threshold and again so it has to be honest assessments made by clinicians and that's really really difficult for some of these things it is difficult but the law takes that into account as well because the question of capacity assessment is set by the profession itself. So if it was in an emergency department and there was lots of pressure and things were being done urgently, as long as the doctor who was making the assessment did so according to what other doctors would do in the same circumstances, then the test has been satisfied. So if your doctor is being asked to sign off on the capacity for someone to sign a will, that's a way different question. And it's answered differently. And that would be a situation where you go, well, I'm going to need to spend 40 minutes doing this and I'm going to need to put them through an MMSE properly to see whether they have an understanding of what a document is. And it's not the emergency physicians that get into trouble with this. It's the GPs who are signing off on wills or they're signing off enduring guardianship where they've made no attempt at all to see whether the person has any capacity. And that's where it falls down. And when you've got a situation where there's time and it has serious and prolonged consequences for the person to say that they have capacity or they don't, then you need to spend the time on it. And that's when I think the standard of care rises to the occasion. But, I mean, I think what you're saying is is what happens in clinical practice, isn't it? But it's, it's a determination made by the clinician as to the seriousness of the decision that needs to be made, the acuity of the situation, and then on the basis of that, you know, how carefully do you need to be clear that somebody has capacity? How carefully do you need to establish whether or not they understand? You know, what difference does it make, to be honest, whether they do or don't understand to a greater or lesser degree? You know, if somebody's choosing between a Snickers bar and a Mars bar and they're a diabetic, you know, I'm probably not going to agonise too much as to whether they understand the calorie differences of the two bars. And if they're making a determination of a, a regarding a treatment that will have profound implications longer term, yes, I would want to be really satisfied that they've got a much better understanding and that they do have capacity to make that determination or that I don't have to get a substituted decision maker involved. I couldn't agree with you more. The Guardianship Act also provides for situations where you don't need to get consent for incapacitated people outside of emergencies but where it would significantly improve the outcomes for the person. So 
I always think of the example if you're in a group home situation and someone's got a headache and they don't have the capacity to themselves to consent to being given Panadol, but you can't find the substitute decision maker and it would be a complete waste of everyone's time for you to try and ring up an enduring guardian. So instead you give them Panadol and, the, and that's what you do because it's justified by the circumstances and the law recognises those circumstances too. Now, I really agree. I think it's what's at stake. The two areas that general practitioners, I think, really come up against the capacity issue is with young people, so teenagers, and whether they satisfy the, that concept of the mature minor when they're seeking treatment they don't want their parents to know about. That's usually not too difficult an assessment to make. The area that I find the hardest is the elderly patients when there is a lot at stake, often a lot financially, often a lot to do with family relationships, and that's where... As I said, I would usually involve someone else to help make that judgment of capacity. And there's time as well. There's no, there's no urgency. That's very interesting, everybody. Let's add another layer of complexity to the discussion. The medical field's always advancing, the science as well as the technology that we use to treat people. Is this making it harder for doctors to provide informed consent around the cost and the options? Ian, what do you think about that? The answer is easy because it's yes. I think it is getting incredibly difficult. I mean, just in my field, and, and I just work in a really defined field, you know, I struggle to keep up with just what I'm doing. And even within that, the array of therapies available for people has just massively exploded. You know, for blood cancers like multiple myeloma, for example, we increasingly find ourselves saying, we know more, but our wisdom is reduced. So we've got a, a whole raft of treatments that are now available, but being able to, even for ourselves, understand the differences between them, which one is advantageous in which situation, is becoming incredibly difficult. So to impart that information to a patient about the complexity of knowledge and how it applies to their situation is really, really tough. The, the other couple of things that make it, I think, even more difficult now is that there are sometimes options that are perhaps outside of the standard medical system. So one of them is complementary and alternative medicines, and I think there's a requirement that clinicians have to have at least some working knowledge of those. We can argue about the degree to which you should understand that and the degree to which you should or should not refer. The second is clinical trials. So often, in fact, for us, one of the options that we have to put to people is that, look, you can have this, this and this, and they're all proven treatments, but there's another option which is a clinical trial which provides you with something that actually isn't evidence-based. It may be, but it's not evidence-based. And then the, the other one is things that are outside of clinical trials, they're outside of Medicare and the PBS, but there are things that a patient may you know, purchase themselves or even import. And, and increasingly we find ourselves having that kind of conversation as well. So it's become really, really tough in terms of options. Not impossible by any means, but difficult and complex. Your, your other question was about costs of treatment and I think the answer there is also yes, that's become more difficult. For different reasons though, I think if we went out into you know haematology land or general practice and said look can you tell us exactly what's required of financial consent, I think a lot of doctors will struggle to actually understand what it means, what's required of it and so forth and it's a relatively new sort of requirement if you were to ask hospital clinicians, for example, what's the cost of all of the treatments that you're recommending? The costs for your service, the cost for the pharmacy, the cost of referral to the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist, the ancillary staff, 
etc. That's really tough, right? and most people actually won't know that. The second is, is that what's the cost of alternatives? Even more difficult. Right? And the third is, is that what's the cost for things that exist outside of your domain? So the information that actually should come from insurers, right? the information that should come from the hospital, Right, or the accountancy staff at the hospital. So, and that's a different place for a standard consent. Consent, the way that Martine was describing it and the way that I was describing it, is something between the clinician and the patient. But this is consent where there's multiple parties in the room, and that's really difficult. It, it is, and it's becoming more complex. It's also a subject that we see a lot about in complaints to the council, people being unclear or unsure or unhappy with costs that are different to what was estimated at the beginning of the episode of care. We've also seen a rise in what we might call doctorpreneurs, doctors who have a vested interest in the treatment that they're recommending to patients. Is that something patients should be informed about? Professor Stewart, can you just give us a legal perspective on that? My own view about doctorpreneurs is that they're operating obviously in areas of medicine where there's financial incentives and The law's approach to this is to impose what's called a fiduciary duty. And doctors don't ordinarily owe fiduciary duties in Australia as opposed to other countries like America or or the UK. But if you were making financial decisions and then you were withholding information from patients about those financial implications, then that would be a circumstance. High Court's been very clear about that. They would impose a fiduciary duty in those circumstances. We haven't seen a lot of litigation on this because most of the time they're fairly micro-transgressions and they're not worth pursuing legally. But if you're in a circumstance where you're making referrals and you're making money from those referrals to businesses that you might have an interest in or you're using treatments that you have an interest in, intellectual property in, over other treatments, all of those things, they really need to be disclosed. Now, ethically, I'm not sure how well the disclosure of those things actually does work because I think there's this sort of therapeutic relationship where there's automatic trust. So a lot of times people don't even hear those things. But from the legal perspective, it's a very low threshold. You just have to provide informed Mm -hmm. consent. And here informed consent means the disclosure of the financial benefits that you're receiving from the advice that you're providing. And it's the same as when lawyers do it, and it's the same as when accountants do it, and stockbrokers and doctors aren't any different. If you're making money from these things, you need to disclose them. It's just a basic respect for patients, again, going back to those core values of what consent is about. So Cameron, most of the time, is that just, so I'm thinking about a practitioner in private practice, and most of the time would that be saying, look, I'm, I'm recommending you to have a robotic surgery in your prostate, this will cost this amount over and above the Medicare rebate, uh, however, there's other options which would include radiotherapy, which you can get through the radiation oncology department at Blah Hospital for free. Does it require anything more than that? Perhaps more information would be the fact that you're going to be gaining an an interest from the use of the robotic surgery. But even the recommendation is an interest, isn't it? Yeah, even the recommendation could be an interest. But I suppose the laws, ethically, I think you want to be as clear as possible. But legally, it's only those ones where you're getting a financial benefit from that you have to disclose. But isn't any Hmm. practitioner who's performing a procedure getting a financial gain out of doing that procedure and they get that gain only if they do the procedure. They don't get that gain if they refer to a radiation oncologist for free treatment in a public hospital. Yeah, but that's, again, that's disclosed because you, you should be telling the patient, well, look, this is what it's going to cost. So that's your, that's your disclosure. So your ordinary, everyday 
relationships of care where you say, well, you want this procedure, it's going to cost this much. That's that's where you're doing the disclosure. I suppose what I'm talking about here is where you're referring on, say, to getting a scan. You're not disclosing the fact that you actually own a big chunk of the imaging of the, company. Of the imaging com- company that you're referring to. Say, for example, and we've seen some big cases involving things like transvaginal mesh, where doctors uh, in New South Wales were using transvaginal mesh devices that had actually been dis-registered and taken off approval, but the doctors were still recommending them without disclosing the fact that they own the patents on those things. That's a, a super egregious example, which normally falls way back into, like I said, a micro-transgression where no one's ever going to pick up the fact that you've been referred to a, a radiation business that you have an interest in because what does it mean? It might mean you earn $5 from that. No one's going to sue you for that. Of course, with the transvaginal mesh examples, there were huge implications of those cases that had complete lifetime disabling events and and also involved the doctors being disciplined before NCAT. Cameron, as a rule of thumb, how much information and what kind of information does a patient need for their consent to be considered informed consent? So this comes from the classic case of Rogers and Whitaker, where the High Court were reluctant to refer to it as informed consent because what it really was about was a duty to disclose material information about risk. And there's two limbs to that. The first limb to that is what do doctors in your position with patients like this ordinarily provide in terms of risk information? So your classic accounts of risk with a patient with this condition, what do you normally say? What do your peers say? So that's what we call the objective limb of informed consent. And then the second question is for patients that might have a particular concern and it's an unusual concern. It doesn't fall into the ordinary risks that one would normally communicate to a patient like this. And we call that the subjective limb. And of course in Rogers and Whitaker itself, it's a classic case where a woman who was blind in one eye was seeking cosmetic surgery to correct a strabismus and she wasn't told about an incredibly rare complication of sympathetic ophthalmia, which could have resulted in blindness in both eyes. And for her, she had came to see the doctor, she had presented in such a way and asked questions which indicated she was extremely concerned about any possible risk that she could go blind in both eyes. And she was not informed about that risk. And of course, after the surgery had been performed completely uh, professionally and, and according to the best standards, but she was able to successfully sue the doctor because he hadn't raised that particular risk with her which was material to her. So objective and subjective are the, are the two main components of the of the test. And it's usually triggered, I'd say, 99 times out of 100. You do the objective test and that's enough, but every now and again you're going to get a patient who's got a particular concern and you need to address that concern and provide them with information about things you may not ordinarily speak to. So material risks are important things for us to consider. In the last few years, we've seen a number of complaints about iron infusions because many patients weren't informed about the possibility of skin staining. Sometimes, though, it takes careful judgment on the doctor's part to know which risks are going to be significant to the patient. What's our legal obligation here? Is it just about getting the patient to sign a piece of paper? Most certainly not. The piece of paper is useful for two reasons. The first way uh, a formal written consent is useful is because it should work like a script for the doctor to go through, talking through each of the risks and making sure each of them has been addressed properly. 
The second useful for the piece of paper is that it then becomes a record. Medical records tend to be an issue that come up a lot, that the medical records are poor and things haven't been recorded properly. So having a form like that and using a form structure is a good way of just sealing off the record and making sure it's there. Uh, so they're, they're the reasons for using a form, but the form is not a substitute for actually doing the consent. It's a tool for the consent process. And when we're going through issues and we're talking to the patients, it's only in that conversation you're going to find out about the material risks, particularly the subjective limb. If you're having a conversation with a patient, it's, it's at that opportunity you have the chance of finding out if they're concerned about anything particular. And if you don't make time for that, then you're never going to tick off the material risk obligation that's on the subjective limb and then there's going to be problems. In day-to-day practice, though, it can be so hard to make that time. And again, it comes down to the what's at stake. And, and I know for myself, when we do iron infusions in our practice, I have a bookmarked list of lots and lots of photos to show people because it's such a significant risk. It's a problem too when of all these new and emerging treatments because what might be a really poorly understood risk over time suddenly becomes a well understood risk. So if you're not keeping up to date with things, something that you may never have mentioned, but now all your colleagues are mentioning, you you don't know about that and then suddenly you're breaching your duty to inform. So keeping up to date is really important as well. The other thing, and it goes to what Martine was just saying as well, is that now, the notion of this, like a fully informed consent, I think that's a terrible, terrible sort of misnomer because because there is always a judgment call about the kinds of risks that you're going to be talking to somebody about. I mean, penicillin has more than a thousand demonstrable risks. You don't tell someone about all of those risks, the ones that are, you know, tiny, right? but you make a judgment call about what you should talk to people about. And then that's sort of ethical or you know, valid consent, but it's not necessarily a fully informed consent. There's no obligation medically, legally, ethically to tell everybody everything about everything. Yeah, and that's the problem with using the phrase informed consent. I mean, we use it all the time, but the High Court said don't use it because it's not meant to be informed consent. It's an American Adequately informed consent. Well, it's not even meant to be informed. Sometimes it'll be you'll perfectly satisfy your duty if the patient turns up and says, well, here we're going to go through the consent process and the patient says, no. I'm not interested in any of that, just do it. And legally, now ethically it's problematic, but legally that's perfect satisfaction of the duty to inform. The patient has told you they don't want any information and they're just going to go ahead with it. Okay, let's do it. Legally that has been a complete satisfaction of the duty. It's deliberately dumb consent, but it satisfies the duty to provide material information about risk. So that's why we shouldn't call it informed consent because it doesn't have to be informed at all. It's a duty to provide material information. That's what it is. And if nothing's material, you don't care about any risks, that's fine. Thanks, everybody. That was a really valuable discussion. The takeaway messages I heard from you were, firstly, consent must be given before making physical contact with a patient and before any medical procedure, treatment or referral, unless it's an emergency that requires urgent action. The second thing I heard was for consent to be valid, the patient giving consent must have capacity. Consent must be freely given, specific to the proposed treatment or procedure, and the patient must be given enough information to genuinely understand its implications. And the third thing I heard was the patient should be informed of any costs related to the procedure, treatment or referral, as well as any material risks that are particular to the patient or reasonably significant for any person in the patient's circumstances.
Ian, have you got any additional thoughts to add? Maybe just one, and the, and that is that consent is it's a conversation, not a form, and it's a process, not an event. Cameron, just to reiterate that it's consent is about seeking permission to touch. It's also about uh, an obligation to provide information, and it also provides the basis for the therapeutic relationship. And Martine. I think just to make sure that practitioners understand that they're not only talking about what they do and what they can offer patients, but that there are also other people who can offer treatments that might be equally valid and might be, for that patient, more appropriate. Professor Kerridge, Professor Stewart and Dr Walker, thank you for sharing your insights and experiences with us today. Thank you, Annette. Thanks very much. Thanks, Annette. You've been listening to our special feature on informed consent. If you'd like to find out more about any of the information discussed in this podcast, you can access various links and resources in the episode description box located right here on your podcast player. Or you can contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au. You can also subscribe and hear more podcasts from the Medical Council of New South Wales via Wooshka, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy your podcasts.